0: Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review where our goal is to listen to the top artisan songs of the last 100 years starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Every Monday we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie and today you're listening to Side A of our second episode featuring the music of 1923. In today's episode we'll be listening to the debut of a few very important players including King Oliver's Jazz Band featuring Louis Armstrong, Jelly Roll Morton, and the Queen of Syncopation, Blossom Seeley. First, in an episode that sees the introduction of Louis Armstrong himself, let's take a look at King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. The eponymous King himself was Joseph Oliver, born in 1881 in Aben, Louisiana. While Louis Armstrong played second cornet in King Oliver's band, it was King Oliver himself on first cornet, and of whom Armstrong said, It was my ambition to play as he did. I still think that if it had not been for Joe Oliver, jazz would not be what it is today. He was a creator in his own right. Oliver is particularly notable for his use of the mute on his cornet, which gave his instrument a unique sound that made it more expressive and allowed it to mimic speech vaguely. Nelson trained his body and mind to be an instrument of jazz as he played for a decade in New Orleans Storyville Red Light District. In 1918, Oliver moved to Chicago, where he would pair his New Orleans sound with the faster tempo music popular in the club scene of that city. Though the Creole jazz band would be broken up through most of the mid-20s and sidelined more or less completely by the Depression, the impact that King Oliver in particular made on musicians, including but not limited to Armstrong, is without a doubt the biggest influence that Joe Oliver would have in particular. Musicians of all stripes broke race barriers to try to learn from Oliver, and were it not for his progressive gum disease which made it difficult and painful for him to play, it's likely he would have continued to pace with the best of the 30s. Ferdinand Joseph Lamotte was born in 1890 in New Orleans, but by the time of his death in 1941, he would have indelibly earned his fame under the name Jelly Roll Morton. Morton started his illustrious career as the piano player of a brothel at the age of only 14 years old. His grandmother, with whom he was living at the time, chose to believe Morton's story that he was working in a barrel factory at night, but eventually found out the truth and disowned him for disgracing the family's good name. Speaking of, we've discussed a lot about the nicknames that artists from these times have, from kings and queens to even deans. But this by far is the dirtiest nickname that we've seen. Jelly Roll was slang for a woman's private parts at the time. One of the major things that Morton did was to arrange and write down his compositions, making them some of the first written records of improvised music. His 1915 Jelly Roll Blues was one of the first jazz compositions to be published. In 1923, Morton would start focusing on publishing his own recordings, and in that we have the music today, which he found success with. In 1938, Morton was stabbed by the friend of a club owner that he worked with, and the nearby whites-only hospital refused to treat him, causing him to be transported to a black hospital farther away. Following the stabbing, he was often short of breath, as he was unable to recover properly due to the substandard treatment. He died in 1941 at the age of only 50 from causes related to these injuries. Moving on, we have in the band Manhattan Harmony 4 an historical black hole that is seemingly well-documented and yet hard to find information about. So if you know anything about the members of this band, please reach out on Twitter at Cunning Review. This is a big contradiction as well because their song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, is so well known that Beyoncé has sung it live, and I've added that to the end of the playlist for an idea of how striking and important this song is as sung by a modern standout vocalist. In fact, the NAACP in 1920 declared this song to be the Negro National Anthem. This song, and the Manhattan Harmony 4's version in particular, has also been inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recordings Registry. There's no doubt about it that this song has become much bigger than its singers or anyone recording, But if you know anything more about this particular singer and recording group, I'd love to hear it and share it with everyone. Our next star, Blossom Sealy, was born Minnie Geyer in 1891 in San Francisco and would live all the way until 1974 when she would pass away at the age of 82 in New York City. In between, she would have multiple hits stemming from a vaudeville career in the 20s that would help her to maintain a long series of performances throughout the development of EPs and into late night television in the 60s. One of the more interesting side facts about Seeley was that she was married to Baseball Hall of Famer Rube Marquardt, but in general she was a workhorse performer who had some hits. I'd never heard of her before today, and so we'll see what she has in store for us with her vocals. However, it is interesting to know that in the last episode, we discussed Sophie Tucker's performance of Some of These Days in 1911, and that's the most famous version. Seely actually recorded a version of the song in 1910, and we have another version of the same song from the original Dixieland Jazz Band from 1923 that we'll listen to today. It's just another example of how centralized the sheet music industry was and how many performers were doing the exact same music from the exact same songwriters. That would be unheard of today, but obviously it was very common back then. Paul Whiteman and the original Dixieland Jazz Band are both artists who we've discussed previously on Cunningham's Law Review, but here's three things you should know about them before listening. Paul Whiteman, known as the King of Jazz, could be said to have started the big band movement that would evolve over the next 20 years into the height of the 40s swing movement. His average score of 16 for our 1920 review was one of the higher average totals for performers with multiple songs, and improved in 1921 to an average of 16.75. He really started to show his stuff that year with the track Song of India, and he tried to repeat his classical music inspirations in 1922 with Oriental but lacked the same magic that Song of India had, and averaged 14.8 for that year. Whiteman was a classically trained orchestra leader prior to his jazz career, and his performances and song choices often reflect that. They can be very well composed and arranged by his hand. Whiteman was one of the first mainstream performers to popularize jazz as we know it today, but he likely benefited from the lack of competition from black composers, who were not able to find work in the entertainment industry easily due to racism. That being said, the times were changing and we're already starting to hear competing and better songs from black artists at this time. Our final artist today, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, was actually the first band to record a jazz song in 1917 and had a big hit with 1918's Tiger Rag. That song is actually to this day LSU's pregame song. The band came from New Orleans, like many of today's other performers, and had a big sound full of interwoven instruments working together. In our 1921-3 episode, the band earned passing scores that average out to 14 overall with their jazzed-up renditions of jazz standards including Palestina, St. Louis Blues, and the Royal Garden Blues. One of the things we noted about the Royal Garden Blues is though, despite King Oliver being known as the first to use mutes on his horn, in the lyrics for 1921's Royal Garden Blues, the ODJB mentions a muted horn. King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band had not yet put out a recorded album, So this is an example of recorded evidence that the ODJB had at least heard of the technique, though they didn't often use it then. It's certainly possible that they had interacted with Oliver in either New Orleans or Chicago by 1921. For those of you hearing the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you which includes all of the music as a part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once, and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're hearing this episode through a different service, or on YouTube, and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1923-2, and you don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or reach out on Twitter at CunningReview. That's all for Side A of Episode 1923-2. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1923-2, where we're listening to a full boat of New Orleans jazz stars of the early 1920s with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, Jelly Roll Morton, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, as well as other popular artists of the time in the Manhattan Harmony 4, Blossom Seely, and Paul Whiteman, who is at least playing songs about New Orleans in his offering for today. This is the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review, and we'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Let's take our mica system to Jelly Roll Morton's offerings for 1923 as we start off this new year of music to review. As a reminder, the Mica system features five categories of one to five points each. Mastery, innovation, catchiness, authenticity, and artistic statement. The lowest score is a five because some music is better than none, and the top score is a 25. Now a fun fact for the first song that we've ever reviewed from Jelly Roll Morton is that Kansas City Stomp is named after a bar in Tijuana and not the city itself. Morton spent a lot of time in the early 20s playing music in California, and worked in Mexico throughout 1922, where he found the Kansas City Bar. It sounds silly, but there's probably a Mexican restaurant named Tijuana Bar in Kansas City as well, so who are we to judge? The song starts out right away in high spirits, and features Morton playing a lively tune on the keys, unaccompanied, though in his ragtime style of playing, it can sound like two people playing at once. If you've wondered what ragtime music is it's easy to identify because it's the song that you hear in your head when you picture an old-timey saloon in an old west movie that comes from the way it's composed and played where the left hand fills in jumping regular beats and then a ragged higher section plays over the top of the sewn beat essentially making for a one-man band now unfortunately i'm not able to verify that this is the original recording from 1923 But later recordings from 1928 do feature a full arrangement of dixieland jazz sound instead of just the piano and in particular those recordings sound as if they are made from the electronic era which wouldn't begin for two more years after this recording was made now jelly roll morton made a claim that he invented jazz in 1902 and i do want to talk about that a little bit because it doesn't necessarily seem to fit with reality now we'll probably never know for sure who invented jazz but Jelly Roll Morton did compose the first written jazz song in 1915, and the original Dixieland jazz band recorded the first jazz record in 1917. But it is worth saying that Morton claimed he was born in 1885, but records indicate he was born in 1890. Now the major reason to lie about your age in this way is to seem older, and in this case, Morton's claim to have invented jazz in 1902 is a bit more credible if he's 17 instead of 12. And so that causes a little bit of incredulity about the claim but honestly not much of this matters since what we have here today is a song in the vein of scott joplin very well performed and showing the markings of improvisational flow and instinct for rhythm based on performance and that is fun to hear in a time where so much of the vaudeville stuff was melodramatic instead of fun for mastery morton earns a four and in innovation earns a four for his iterations on joplin's themes Catchiness is a solid four, and it's just fun to listen to to the point where it makes me want to learn piano so I can jump my hands around and play it as well. Authenticity and artistic statement are difficult to gauge since there are no lyrics, but there's an unmistakable draw to the music, and so they earn a four and three respectively for a total mica score of 19 out of 25 points. Now, admittedly, so far to me, Jelly Roll Morton is a lot more like hearing Scott Joplin piano tunes than I thought it would be but it does show a more intuitive sense of what the crowd would like to hear and what would make toes tap in the audience. And I can say that firmly because each time I listen to this music to try and figure out why it's so special, all I can answer is that my foot is moving the whole time. For Grandpa's Spells, Morton receives the same score for the same reasons as with Kansas City Stomp from Micah of 19. It's impossible to listen to these songs from New Orleans' own sons, Jelly Roll Morton and King Oliver, and not hear the similarities present in both. More than anything, there's a dedication to performance and highlighting the beat that certainly would have been honed by trying to make a living through playing clubs and dance halls, and not by selling records or performing in a theater setting. This was a performance meant to be enjoyed, and each player supports that mission with their own instrumental voice, yet they still avoid stepping on each other through expertise and experience with one another. We have to remember that these recordings were taken live, in one shot, and with the only mixing available made by placing louder instruments away from the recording horns that fed into the record. Mastery is a 5, Innovation is a 4, Catchiness of 4, Authenticity of 5, and Artistic Statement of 4 for a total score of 20. Especially, it's very interesting to hear the solo in the middle, which almost sounds as if Benny Goodman would play it on the clarinet a decade later to become the King of Swing. The influence there is undeniable, and as good as Benny Goodman truly is, then there's no denying that. To me, it's incredible that Oliver's band is not more often mentioned as influencing the development of swing music to come. In Chimes Blues, some of the magic is certainly missing, and it's most likely due to the song sounding more like other similar vaudeville performances that we have heard in our previous listening. It's not as lackluster as a Ted Lewis song or anything like that, and the chimes in the middle that recall a music box are interesting. But overall there's less to like in chimes than in Canal Street Blues or Dippermouth Blues, and it's Mike the score reflects that, with a score of four, three, 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 totaling sixteen. And speaking of Dippermouth, in Dippermouth blues we get the name of the song from a nickname for Louis Armstrong. It's a lively song, surely full of jumping horns, and especially that of Joe Oliver's Mute Horn. His solo here is a big and often revered part of this song. But that focuses overly on the solo's importance in the development of music brought on by its impact, and not on the song itself. The solo would prove to be so influential and oft-imitated in the years to come that it's seen as very important, since it's being held up as an example of the first time a mute horn was played on a record. With that being said, the clarinet solo that precedes it is equally as amazing and well done, and you never hear anyone say anything about it. So that's a great example of why we have to listen personally in order to not just listen to what other people tell us about music. For unparalleled innovation and mastery, the song earns a 5, with a 3 in catchiness, 4 in artistic statement, and 5 in authenticity for a total microscore score of 22. Very, very high. Moving on to the original Dixieland jazz band's version of Some of These Days, after hearing the Creole jazz band, this version feels a bit muted in comparison, even though their trumpets aren't. But compared to music other than King Oliver's, the song would certainly have been a lively change from vaudeville's offerings of ballads, and it does feature instruments that play around, but not in the way of one another, earning a 4 in mastery. The sound is certainly similar to other jazz bands, but we know from the original Dixieland jazz band's background as New Orleans players that this was an authentic sound for them as well, earning a 4 for authenticity with a 3 for innovation as they sound very much like they have for the past few years. Catchiness is a 3, as there's nothing really drawing you into the song, but nothing drawing you out of it either. And similarly, the song receives a 3 for artistic statement for a total of 17 out of 25 points. Blossom Seely's Way Down Yonder in New Orleans is our first version of the song today, and here we're getting a standard vaudeville version of the song about going to New Orleans when it gets cold outside. The music and singing are well done, but don't challenge anyone in particular earning a 3, Artistic statements are limited and mostly center around making the rhyme schemes work, even though they're clever and complementary of the Crescent City and earn a 3. Innovation is a generous 3, but I'm looking forward to see what Whiteman can do with the same song as we hear it next. The way that Seely sings, the otherwise plausible lyrics make her performance sound more vaudeville-oriented than authentic, and she receives a 2 for authenticity for a total score of 14. Moving on to Whiteman's version, unfortunately for Whiteman, this is a simple replaying of the same song nearly the same way that Seely did it and doesn't add much other than a perfunctory dance hall performance of, of what was a popular song at the time. Everything works, but it could have been played by nearly anyone else, so authenticity is a three. The horn is a standout, keeping it from a lower score there, and it certainly does a lot better than the slide whistle that Whiteman has had standing in for previous vocal sections. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes... I'm not making that up in other uh, songs where Whiteman has a vocal section replaced with a musical instrument. He uses a slide whistle. It's strange. But Mastery is a three as well with innovation, since the song is at least arranged well for a bigger and more interesting band, though it's nothing crazy. It felt to me as if the song was dragging on by the end, earning a two for catchiness, since I wanted to stop listening to it. And the artistic statement and authenticity both earn twos, since really this is a cash-in as far as I can tell. One interesting thing about the song though, if not Whiteman's performance of it, is that it was written as sheet music, advertised with the tagline, a southern song without a mammy in it. Uh, Clearly a dig at Jolson and Marion Harris's works, shedding light into them as being perceived as cliche and cloying even then. But you can complain about them all you want, they still outsold nearly everyone, and that means the blame really lies on the consumer not being so discerning. Total for Whiteman, a disappointing 12, meaning Seely's is the better of the two versions, but not in a significant way. I've saved the most important song for last, with the Manhattan Harmony 4's Lift Every Voice and Sing. Normally, I would say that the most important song in our episode would clearly have been the one which featured the introduction of Louis Armstrong on record, the first recorded use of the mute horn, and an overlooked clarinet solo that makes me feel smart for pointing it out. But in reality, Lift Every Voice and Sing is by far the most important song we're reviewing this week and possibly so far throughout the show. And if you don't know why, I sincerely recommend that you take some time and look into it on your own because the song is very rich in history, meaning, and crucial to the American identity. Uh, It's really something that our show is not going to be able to give its full due and it should be looked up by every person who hears this because it is very important. Long story short... It's the black national anthem as coined by the NAACP and has since been sung in the white house throughout the civil rights movements and the desegregation eras. Simply put, this is a song that you should know the words to because it is that important. In order to show its inherent staying power and keep in mind, we're talking about a recording from 1923. It's staying power and cultural relevance still exists though. I've included on the playlist a performance by Beyonce from her homecoming live album. While we, of course, won't rate that version since it's anachronistic, the song is important and should be more well known, especially by younger and non black listeners. The music in the Manhattan Harmony 4's version is very simple, as the lyrics, which were originally the words to a poem written by James Weldon Johnson in 1900, are the important part. The recording quality is poor, the music is simple, and it receives a mica score of 23255 5, for a total score of 17, which is high, but. Those lower scores of 2 in mastery are for the non-challenging music, which is probably a conscientious choice to stay out of the way of the lyrics, and the catchiness, which the song isn't supposed to be catchy. Um, The authenticity and artistic statement do rate fives, though, and I don't think there's any way to uh, challenge that. We must remember this scoring system is for the recording and not for the song overall, which transcends anyone recording in importance. Well, that's all for today's episode. We'll be back next Monday with our third episode of 1923, featuring Ted Lewis, Paul Specht, and a fiddle master from the Grammy Hall of Fame, who you've probably never heard of. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to know what you think, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on our show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast everywhere you can. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by the insider and nobody else works here.